On this, the third Sunday in Lent, the lectionary cycle of readings has a shift somewhat abruptly from following the Gospel according to Mark to reading from John. It will be reading from John's Gospel until we shift back to Mark on Palm Sunday, so two more after this one. Before plunging into tonight's reading, I thought it might be helpful to make a couple of general remarks. John's Gospel, you see, is quite unlike the other three. John trains his camera lens differently. He follows a different timeline, and he seems quite happy to change details in order to suit his goals as a Gospel writer. John offers a handful of extended teaching images, the shepherd, the vine, the bread from heaven, But his gospel includes absolutely no true parables. He does, however, include long, long dialogues. Jesus with Nicodemus, with the Samaritan woman at the well, with the disciples at the Last Supper, with Pontius Pilate at the trial, and finally with Peter on the beach in light of the resurrection. Well, the novelist Reynolds Price calls John's Gospel the most outrageously demanding work in any type of prose or verse that had yet appeared in the West or Near East. And this on account of its claim that Jesus of Nazareth is God incarnate. It's all set out in the Gospel's opening prologue. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. And then, just a few verses later, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and of truth. Well, such words, Reynolds Price claims, demand that we make a hard choice. Do we believe it? Do we believe what John is telling us in those words, in fact, through his whole narrative? Unlike Mark's gospel, over the first half of which Jesus keeps cautioning people to not speak too openly, don't spread the word too fast, don't tell anybody about this healing, In John, there's absolutely no sign of Jesus wanting or needing to slow down the spread of his message. He's public, very public, pretty much right from the start. And so it is, close to the beginning of the gospel according to John, that he gives us the story of Jesus driving the merchants and the money changers out of the temple. A public act, if there ever was one. It's interesting, in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this event takes place in the final days of Jesus' life. It seems to be a big part of what triggers the hostility toward him. In the other three Gospels, in fact, Jesus doesn't even visit Jerusalem till the very end. How is it that John pictures Jesus in Jerusalem at such an early stage, right at the beginning, in fact. Because John is a poet. 
John is an artist, and he has a story to tell. No, that, that's too weak, actually. John has truth to proclaim. He's simply not troubled, though, by our very modern and linear assumptions, the, the things that inform our way of preserving what we take to be the truth. What's at stake is the claim that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John needs to show us in fullness what that means. So he'll move things around. He's not playing with the story. He's proclaiming the truth. And so he begins, The Passover of the Jews was near. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, making a whip of cords. Jesus drove them all out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. Well, talk about a public act. There's nothing subtle, understated, or veiled in what he's just done. It might be a little helpful, too, to have a sense of the layout of the temple. Think in terms not of a, a building like this, but rather one built in sort of layers of almost like concentric circles. At the heart was the holy place. That's where only the priests could go and only at select times. The next layer out was the court of the priests, where they would do their day-to-day -day activities. The next layer out was the court of Israel, although it should really be called the court of Israelite men, because the women weren't allowed in there. The next layer out was the court of women. They could get in at least that far. And then finally, all around the outside, the court of the Gentiles, which was an outer area open to everyone. And it would have been in this outer area that Jesus encountered the merchants and the money changers, exchanging what was considered to be tainted Roman currency for the duly religious shekels that you needed to make your offering. The issue that Jesus addresses directly is the one of turning my father's house into a marketplace. But I also think it's fair to assume that part of what infuriated him is the way in which the one place that the non-Jews, the Gentiles, were allowed to come into, the one place that was open to anyone and everyone, was completely co-opted by the machinations of a rather commercialized version of the Jewish religious faith. And he is clearly infuriated. There's the whip of cords, the dumping over of the coins, and the overturning of the tables. I mean, this isn't just a be gone, be gone, chase them out with a broom kind of activity. This is a passionate act. Not surprising, then, that after he's done this, they ask him, on what authority exactly are you doing this? What sign can you show us for having done this? Turned everything upside down? To which Jesus rather enigmatically answers, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. 
This temple has been under construction for 46 years. It wasn't finished yet, by the way. Herod's temple was never finished. 46 years. And you're going to raise it up in three days? He's mad. He's out of his mind. Here John notes that Jesus was speaking not of the physical stone temple, but rather of the temple of his body, of his own self. And that it was only after he was raised from the dead that his disciples remembered that he'd said this, and that they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Ah, so the act was a very, very public one, but its meaning was veiled. There was really something enigmatic about about his interpretation of what he was doing. It's a classic example of hindsight being 20-20. You know, it's later the disciples go, so that's what he was talking about. That's why he was doing that that way. And you do realize, of course, that from a practical perspective, Jesus accomplished absolutely nothing that day. Not practically. I mean... He clearly made an impression on his disciples. And he doubtlessly raised the hostility of those for whom the temple's business as usual was working just fine. Thank you very much. It's our living. But what do you suppose happened after Jesus and the disciples left the temple? They rounded up the animals. They swept up the coins. Set the tables back up. And into business they went, just as they always did. Maybe the temple guards were alerted. Maybe someone was appointed to keep an eye out for that Galilean hooligan in case he came rolling back in with his wretched whip. Otherwise, nothing. Didn't make a single bit of difference. That's actually something that can be said about much of what Jesus does. As Robert Capon rightly observes, even in his wondrous miracles, there wasn't a program, not a program for fixing up history. Capon says most of the blind of Jesus' time went on being blind. Lazarus was raised only to die again another day. Lepers are still with us. And the descendants of the bridegroom at the wedding feast received no guarantee of a full wine cellar in perpetuity. As salvation scenarios, they're a bust. The program itself, Capon continues, when Jesus gets around to finally revealing it, turns out to be nothing but himself in his death and resurrection which, of course, is what he's pointing to already in his own interpretation of why he has authority to do what he did. When you think about it, though, it's a wildly impractical way for anything to get done. All of these acts, these prophetic acts, these parables, these, these miracles, these healings, these restorations, all of it incredibly impractical. Wouldn't a decently respectable reform and renewal campaign have done the trick better? 
Wouldn't one that took advantage of the solid bricks and mortar that were already in place to say nothing of the well-established religious practices of the day, wouldn't that have made more sense to just kind of fix that up and make it work better? God, it seems, specializes in impracticalities. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, writes Paul in his stunning introduction to the first letter to the Corinthians. We proclaim Christ crucified, Paul writes, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Did you notice? Both Jews and Greeks, which is something that the old system could never quite fully come to grips with, that this was for all. Of course, of course, Jesus acts in impractical ways. Of course, he keeps doing these things that from a strategic point of view are utter folly. That's the whole point. If God in Christ, the Word made flesh, is in fact God's new thing, then he will be all but unrecognizable when viewed through old lenses. But when those old lenses fall to the ground and are smashed to pieces on the paving stones... After he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered. When those lenses smash, we begin to see something of what is really there. And with Paul can proclaim that extraordinary upside-down truth. God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. God's weakness is stronger than human strength. And it's only in light of that acknowledgement that anything that Jesus does, whether it's chasing the money changers from the temple or having an extended conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well or offering forgiveness to a broken person caught in adultery, anything he does only makes sense when we embrace it as part of God's folly. And God's folly is so deeply wise. Amen.